But this peace was a fake peace. The peace of Rome was a fake peace because it was established under the brutal edge of the sword and Roman might. It was a fake peace. One author of, uh, in the first century said they created a desert and called it peace. That's how they describe the peace of Rome. So, Caesar Augustus, he's an important guy, to say the least. And when he says something, it happens. And in those days, Caesar Augustus gave a decree, an order, that everybody in the world was to be registered, at least in the Roman world. We might today call this a census. Now, the only reason in this time frame that you would do a census was really for two reasons. He didn't care just how many subjects he had. What did he want to do? He wanted money through taxation, and he wanted to know how strong his army was, how many subjects, men, he could call upon to fight in his wars. This was also seen as an additional form of oppression, as the occupying power continued imposing its will on the people. And sure enough, it's exactly what he used it for. Caesar Augustus had an incredible building program. He needed lots of revenue to do it. He said on his deathbed, when I came, Rome was bricks. Now it's marble. That's how much he built and how he saw his impact. And to be sure, it was. And so he orders a census, and the world moves. This is worth pausing and thinking about. Here we have the most powerful man in the world, seated on his throne, believing himself to be divine, and God is calling the shots. God is ruling and reigning over Caesar Augustus. You say, what do you mean? Well, about 700 years earlier, a prophet by the name of Micah gave a message. And this prophet, God speaking through him, said, a ruler is going to come from Bethlehem, somebody who will shepherd my people. And so ever since then, now here in Luke 2, we see the Roman Empire just happens to conduct a census when Mary just happens to be at this time of her pregnancy so that it will move Joseph and Mary to his hometown of Bethlehem where Jesus would ultimately be born. See, Caesar Augustus is on the throne, but God is calling the shots. Make no mistake about it. We need to hear this today, church. We need to hear this, especially with the political upheaval in our land, the political theater playing out before us, election year in 2020. God will move the nations to redeem and rescue his people. That's what we need to hear. God will move the nations to bring about the purposes of his son. Whatever happens with the president, Whatever happens in the Senate or in the House, make no mistake about it, God is calling the shots, and he will move entire nations to accomplish his purpose. We need to hear this. Truly, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he pleases, whether it be Caesar Augustus in the first century or the United States of America in 2019. 
Please remember this. There's a certain breed of Christianity all around us, perhaps in here, that spends much time in the news and little time with Christ. Let us not be given to fear or arguments over political leadership and movements. Instead, let us busy ourselves with our hand to the plow with the great commission. God has called us to make disciples of all nations, and He will move nations to rescue His people and fulfill His purposes. Don't miss that today. You thought when I said the king's decree that I was talking about Caesar Augustus, didn't you? No, no, no. We're talking about the king's decree. Get Joseph to Bethlehem. Number two, the king's journey. Verse four and five, the king's journey. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, verse four, from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. The king's journey. So the decree's issued, and Joseph and Mary have to go to old Joe's hometown of Bethlehem from Nazareth. Just move on. Let's get to the part of the shepherds. No, let's slow down. We normally just gloss over this detail and just, okay, keep going. Let's hear about the shepherds and, and hear about Herod and what he does. Let's slow down. See what, what does this entail, this little two little brief verses. First, think of the physical logistics. Between Nazareth and Bethlehem is a distance of about a hundred miles almost. It's almost a hundred mile journey, just shy of it by about 10 miles, 90 miles, give or take, depending on the route they took. About a hundred miles. Now, for perspective, that is the distance. It is 50 miles to Hana High School. 50 miles one way. So imagine walking on foot, not by car or plane or boat, but on foot walking to Hana and having to walk back. That entire distance is what they would have traveled. Mary would have been pregnant in her third trimester. Whew. Riding on a donkey. Uh-uh. Anybody of you ever ask in that third trimester to the doctor, hey, Due date's coming up. Can I travel? What are they going to say? It's up to you. No. Don't ask the doctor. Ask your wife. You want to travel? No. I want to go anywhere. I don't want to move. And so they would have made this 100-mile journey while Mary's pregnant in her third trimester, which also meant Mary know full well she was going to be away from her home. She's going to be away from her family. She's going to be away from her friends. She's going to be away from the little home that she's been nesting for her baby, getting it ready just right for baby Jesus. All of it gone. She has to leave it all to go to an unfamiliar place. Sound good? No, this is what they had to deal with. There's the physical logistics. Then there's the personal impact. What do I mean? Let's not forget, how old is Mary at this time? She's a teenager. She's a young teenager. Anywhere between 14 to 16 years old. She's a teenager, 
in her third trimester who happens to be pregnant before the wedding has taken place. Think about that. Now you say, we got to understand betrothal. In the Jewish custom of betrothal, they were considered to be married. It would be likened to our proposal. That was a legal binding uh, time. And they were considered to be legally married at that time. And the ceremony had not been constant, or the, the wedding had not been, sorry, the marriage had not been consummated at that time. It awaited the proper celebration, the proper ceremonial aspects of it. And so they were considered to be legally married at this time, and she was pregnant before the ceremony was conducted. That is scandalous today. That would have been scandalous back then, even more so. And now they're traveling, this pregnant teenager out of wedlock, going to Joseph's hometown, likely to run across extended family members, old friends, old co-workers of Joseph's. What could go wrong? What could possibly go wrong? But they go. We know Mary was accused of sexual immorality her whole life because it would come up in Jesus' lifetime. They would accuse him, we weren't born of sexual immorality, you were. This traveled with them wherever they went. This is a personal impact. Who doesn't like, after all, going home when there's a scandal looming over their heads? But that's exactly what they do. They journey to Bethlehem with Jesus in her womb, and through it all, God is sovereignly working in their lives. How about you? Perhaps you're here today and you've come through much adversity to be here. Maybe you've come from a great distance from far away and paid much money at great expense to be here. And through it all, God is sovereignly working in your lives today. Now, I know it's no 100-mile journey by foot, but an eight-hour plane ride from Dallas, a five-hour plane ride from L.A., can feel quite far, can it? Or maybe our local Ohana. Sometimes the journey from your bed to the front doors of this church feels like a million miles, doesn't it? Feels like that ain't never happening. I'm never going to be able to make it out of this bed. It can feel very far. Why? Because personal matters can hinder us. Things happening in our lives can impact us. When we have issues that we're ashamed of, church can feel so distant. God feels so distant. But whatever it is, here you are today. And through it all, God is sovereignly working in your life. But there's something more than a geographical movement happening here. Let's continue on and see what's ha- what else is happening. Number three, the king's birth. The king's birth. Verse six. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for him in the inn. <laughs> You hear Luke's, while while they were there, the time came. Probably that moment she knew would happen, could happen. Maybe she gave a look to Joseph. Oh, this isn't a Braxton Hicks anymore. This is the real deal. Where are we going to stay? There's no room in the inn. 
What are we going to do? And the scriptures sum it up. She gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Sentences like that are why I ask God to help me to behold wondrous things. Because there, in that sentence, you have the king of glory, the creator himself, the prince of peace, the mighty God, the one who holds all things in existence, who is the heir of all things. And here he is in obscurity, in Bethlehem, in an inn, or in a, amongst animals, wrapped in swaddling clothes, weak, humble, meek, poor, seemingly nothing. There was no citywide celebrations. There were no parades. There was no imperial decree. There was nothing in obscurity. God, open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your word. There's one detail that I, I look at and I think, could Mary have been a firstborn mom? She laid him in a manger in a feeding trough? Would any mom Firstborn, lay their child in a feeding trough? Mary did. That's what they had. Luke is stressing for us. See, Luke is concerned with the poor and the outcast in his Luke Acts 2 volume work. He is concerned with those who are on the fringes, the lowly, the hopeless. And so he writes, and he is stressing for us through all of these details, there's no place in the end. There's, he's stressing all of these things, the estate that he came to. He wants us to see this. Listen to how Paul reflects on this. In 2 Corinthians 8, 9, here's what Paul says. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Well, why did he become poor? He goes on. So that you by his poverty might become rich. Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor. So that you by his poverty might become rich. You see what this is saying? He came to identify with us, to call the mighty and the meek, to call those covered with scandal and the self-righteous. He came to save all peoples. That's why he came in this way. I guess we could say, Jesus came to make you rich. Hmm. Jesus came to make you rich. That'll preach, won't it? He did. That's what the text says. So that you by his poverty might become rich, but, but not with the material goods of this world, we must go on to say. He didn't come that you might be rich and drive nice cars or have comfortable clothes or live in massive houses. Not that kind of rich. Those, those things will pass away. Those things will fade into oblivion. He came to give you riches that will never leave. 
an inheritance that will never perish. See, in that end, that night, whatever it looked like, some people think it was a cave with animals around it. Was it a, a more something we would think of like a barn type of deal? Was it a house, a two-story house, and the animals would have been inside, the people sleep on top? Either way, there's animals, and Jesus is surrounded by them, and it's not where people normally stay. So people wonder what he came with, but in that end, that night, Joseph and Mary, worldly speaking, had nothing but Jesus. In that end, all they had was Jesus, and they had everything. Amen? And so it is for all of us. We all must come to the point, like Mary and Joseph, where we say, I have nothing of myself, but my only hope is Jesus. Ultimately, all that I have is nothing, but if I have Jesus, I have everything. We all have to come there. That is the essence of the Christian faith. All you have is Christ. Is that true of you today, my friend? My brother, my sister, is Jesus your greatest treasure? See, the wonder of Christmas, the amazing thing about Christmas is that Jesus brought God to man. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus brought God to man, and then he turns around and brings men to God. That's the wonder of Christmas. He did this so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. So let me ask you, let's wrap up our time with some application this morning, shall we? Let me ask you this. By whose decree did you all come here today? By whose decree are you here this morning? You say, what do you mean? Maybe it wasn't a Caesar that decreed your attendance to church this morning. Maybe it was mom. Caesar, mother, decreed you get out of bed and get to church this morning. Maybe you're here by the decree of a spouse. Or maybe you're here because you're here to see a family member to visit a relative, to celebrate an anniversary, or some other occasion that warranted you traveling from afar, traveling from your bed to be here. And today you find yourself, whatever your occasion, sitting in a pew at Kahului Baptist Church. Let me ask you, do you think that's an accident? Do you think that's happenstance, coincidence? I hope you know, as we saw with Caesar Augustus, God moves nations to rescue his people. And he moves families to save his people. Or maybe you're here with some action or thing hanging over your head like Joseph and Mary thought everybody was sleeping together. They, everybody thought they were sleeping together. Maybe you're here with something looming over you. What would my friends think of me? What would my family think of me in this hometown? What shame did they bear in, your tra in their travels? What are you bearing in your travels? They had immorality hanging over their heads as they traveled. What's hanging over yours? Divorce? 
abortion, drunkenness, substance abuse, incarceration. What is it? What's hanging over your head? Whatever it is, we need to hear. God brought you here not for further condemnation, but for liberation, forgiveness, and freedom through Jesus. The angels told the shepherds in verse 11, if we were to move on, we're not going to spend a lot of time, but they told the shepherds, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Jesus came as a Savior, and He saves people still. If you will turn to Him, if you will trust in Him, He will deliver you because He is a mighty Savior. The reality is, is that none of our stories is over. If you're here today, no matter what's happened in your past, no matter how you stumbled, how you fumbled, none of our stories is over, is it? The last chapter in your life is yet to be written. Today, I invite you to write Jesus back into your story. Today in Christmas, we remember when he entered himself into the story of history. Now I'm asking you, invite him, write him back into your story. Come back to him as your Savior, not my parents' Savior, not my grandparents' Savior, not my friend's Savior, but come back and say, my Lord, my God, my Savior. That's what we need. And I hope you do that today if you haven't. The last group I want to address in our application time, last two groups I think we could say, will be those who have fake peace, like Rome. Those who are here this morning with the facade of peace. You remember the Pax Romana was not a true peace. It was obtained by the edge of the sword. And on a Sunday morning, on any good day, you walk into anybody after the service, you say, how are you doing this morning? You're going to say, fine, I'm good, good, fine. We're all very good at putting up the Pax Romana, the fake peace obtained through means that are less than what God entailed or desired, through brutal submission. So some of you are here perhaps this morning with the facade of peace. It only looks peaceful on the outside. But life at home behind closed doors is a different story. It's a fake peace. Everybody in your home is miserable and you know it. I want to talk to you. See, the world Jesus entered was broken, messy, and was characterized by a type of fake peace. And he entered into the brokenness as the true prince of peace, offering it to all who come to him. See, the mistake of Rome was they thought they could work peace from the outside in. They thought if I make it look 
peaceful, it will actually become peaceful. And so they obtained it at the edge of the sword. That was a mistake they made. That's a mistake we make. If I can put the facade of peace up, if I can look like we have it all together, maybe it'll start to come into place and we make the same error still. It didn't work then and it doesn't work now. Jesus comes as the true Prince of Peace. And he went a different way. Peace doesn't start from the outside in. No, it actually starts from the inside and works its way out. You must be born again. You must be remade new. You must be cleansed from your former sins by faith in Christ. And then out of that, slowly but surely, you are transformed to be like him. So I invite you, maybe that's you, you're here with the fake peace. Come this morning to the true Prince of Peace. And for my KBC family, this will be the last one I want to address specifically. Christmas is characterized by gatherings, generally, for many of us. Either be family gatherings, or the lack thereof because of brokenness. But there's gatherings, and those gatherings with family and friends can be hard, can't they? There's memories, painful memories, baggage that accompanies some of these things. I want to encourage you, don't run from that. Don't, don't dread it either. Remember what I said, the world Jesus entered into was broken and messy. His parents were characterized as having scandal. It is not the gospel that says, I'm going to protect myself from toxic people. That is not the gospel. That is anti-gospel. The gospel is, I engage uh, toxic people because I was one of those toxic people, and I engage them wisely with the hope of the gospel, patterned off of Christ, who himself entered into our toxicity that he might bring peace. So I want to encourage you, as you enter your family gatherings, your Christmas parties, whatever that looks like, enter it with the hope and power of the gospel to make all things new. Enter it with the steadfast, immovable belief that your labor and your family, your prayers for your loved ones are not in vain. Because this is how Christ came to us. And this is the gospel. Let us enter it. I hope you will join us for Christmas Eve on Tuesday at 7 p.m. as Nick Tanaka opens the word and we hear more from Matthew chapter 2 of this incredible birth story of how our Savior came. Let's pray. Father in heaven, there are some here, in a sense all of us are here, that you brought here, you moved nations and families to bring here, that we might worship Christ. Would you draw them today to have faith in Christ. There are some here who, like Mary and Joseph, are letting a shame of some scandal loom over them. Give them freedom through forgiveness in Christ by drawing them this morning. There are some here 
as we said, who perhaps look at in dread and hopelessness at their families and the pain that sin has wrought. Move us to engage our families, patterned off of your incarnation, to enter the messiness, to enter toxicity in great hope for the glory of God. Help us, we pray. And Lord, I pray that this Christmas we would all be alive with wonder at your grace for us, that though you were rich for our sake, you became poor so that we might become rich with you. In Jesus' name. Amen.